All right. If you want to have, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Matthew six. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. In uh, Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Discipline, writes this. In a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of place, out of step with the times. Fasting, going without food, not not eating, it seems pretty foreign to many here in our culture, certainly in the West. Uh, Perhaps it would be accurate to say it is nearly obsolete just not a part of our lives, including uh, in the life of many in the church. It's just not something that we practice regularly or perhaps at all. Foster goes on and contends that one of the reasons for our, our culture's ignoring of this spiritual discipline is that fasting, uh, fasting is due to the messages that we're bombarded with by our culture uh, that, that have, we've come to believe, that, he puts it this way, the constant propaganda fed us today convinces us that if we do not have three large meals each day with several snacks in between, we are on the verge of starvation. I'm sure moms, you've heard that from your kids, I'm starving, right? We, we, we've come to believe that is what Foster says, and so that contributes to us ignoring this practice, this practice of fasting. In the passage that we come to this morning, Jesus speaks of fasting, and so we will be led to reflect on this often neglected spiritual discipline. We will be led to ask various questions about this spiritual discipline, like like what exactly is fasting? Why should we do it? Should we do it? And if we should do it, what are the reasons for it? Why why is Jesus teach what is Jesus teaching us here in regards to this spiritual practice? of fasting. Now before we turn to this morning's passage specifically, let me say a few preliminary things. We have been walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by the announcement of good news, that in Jesus' coming, a whole new order of existence is breaking into the world. The future is spilling into the present. Heaven is invading earth. I have been contending throughout this series that, that what what, when the good news takes hold of a person, when it takes root in a community, something happens. And that something that happens is described here by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Human beings with new characteristics, new motivations, new behaviors, new, a new purpose. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving us a new law. He's not giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. This is not a list of rules. No, Jesus is painting a picture. He's painting a picture of what we become as we believe the good news of His grace, His forgiveness, as we are gospelized, we are transformed when the gospel takes root, when the power of the gospel is at work in us, when the Spirit of God is having His way in us, we become men and women, young and old, who look like this picture. Recently, we moved from chapter 5 into chapter 6 of the gospel and entered into a new section. Chapter 5 began by 
teaching us, explaining to us, uh, be, beginning with Christian character, the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements, followed by a short section about Christian influence. You, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, followed by a longer section about Christian behavior. Remember Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then Jesus illustrated that with six examples, not an exhaustive list, list, but six examples of what Christian behavior looks like in a variety of areas of life. And then chapter 6, we turned to a new section. Here, Jesus takes us deeper, deeper into our own hearts. He helps us to see that behind Christian character, that beyond Christian influence, beneath Christian behavior, in the subterranean regions of our hearts, He wants us to look at our motives. He wants to gospelize what goes on in the deepest part of our heart. Here in these early verses of chapter 6 in Matthew, uh, we, uh, Jesus shifts our focus to, to our acts of religious piety or Christian practices. He specifically speaks to three activities that were prominent in the Jewish religious life, the matter of giving to the poor, of praying, and of fasting. And he prefaces those three illustrations, if you will, as he speaks about our motives, what's going on in our hearts. He prefaces that all with a warning. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. In other words, Jesus begins this section that we continue in today with this warning that there is a danger we face, that we can do the right thing in the wrong way. We can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. We can practice our righteousness in a way that is unrighteous. The last two Sundays, we've looked at those first two examples, if you will. Uh, Jesus has told us that we can give to the poor, not out of obedience to the Father, not out of a desire to care, not out of compassion, but out of a desire for others to see us and go, wow, look at them. They're really generous. Last week we looked at a passage where Jesus speaks about prayer, and prayer, rather than being an avenue for intimacy with the Father, becomes uh, an opportunity for for self-promotion, putting on a show so that others see you. Today we come to the third matter, that of fasting. If you're looking at your Bibles, you'll notice Jesus says some other things about prayer, including the Lord's Prayer. We're going to come back to that. We're skipping over that today to look at this third part of this Uh, His illustrating this reality of the importance of our motives, of what he wants to do. And then next week we'll come back and we're going to walk through uh, the Lord's Prayer and the things that follow it. So today we shift to uh, this part of the text. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning at chapter 6, verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This morning, as we consider what Jesus says about fasting, I, I, there are four things that, to which I want to speak. Uh, first, the paradigm of fasting. Second, the particulars of fasting. Third, the purpose of fasting. And fourth, the practice of fasting. I worked hard on my alliteration this week. 
the, the, the paradigm of fasting, the particulars of fasting, the purpose of fasting, and the practice of fasting. So let's begin uh, by looking at the paradigm of fasting. There is much that we can discover by reading the Scriptures when it comes to this spiritual practice in both the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God gives the one biblical command for His people to fast. Uh, The whole nation of Israel, God's people, were commanded to fast one day a year on a particular day of the year, the Day of Atonement. They were to deny themselves. That means they were to go without food. They were to fast corporately. There are, uh, in Scripture, there are other examples of corporate fasts. In the Old Testament book of Jonah, we read the story of a prophet, uh, the prophet of God, Jonah, who is commanded by God to go preach to uh, the Ninevites, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, hated by the Jews. And there's a few twists and turns in that story. Most of you are probably familiar with it. But eventually Jonah ends up in Nineveh, and he preaches. And much to his chagrin and surprise, the Ninevites hear the message, they repent, and the king says, let's fast, maybe God will relent. And so the whole city, the whole people of Nineveh fast, including the animals fast too. That's what we'd call an involuntary fast. But it's corporate fast. There's the story of Esther in the book of Esther where Esther wins this beauty pageant, becomes a queen, and there's this plot that is launched to kill all the Hebrews, all the Jews, and no one knows really, not not many people know that she is Jewish, and her uncle comes to her and asks for her to help save her people, but it would come at great risk to her own life. And so she finally agrees, but she asks her uncle, go ask our people that they would fast with me. And so she and her attendants and all of the Jews fast for three days. It's an absolute fast. No eating, no drinking, not even water for three days. Another corporate fast. Not only were there corporate fasts, but there are lots of instances in, as we read through the Scriptures of individuals fasting, often as a sign of repentance or as a sign of deep sorrow. King David fasted after being confronted by Nathan the prophet, after he sinned uh, by killing, having Uriah killed and, and committing adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan came and Nathan said, the son born to Bathsheba will die. And David fasted. David fasted on another occasion when Abner was killed. David fasted when Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. Elijah fasted at Mount Horeb. Hannah fasted because she was childless. Daniel fasted for his people in exile. There are so many examples that we can point to of God's people engaging in fast, corporately and individually. But it's not only an Old Testament reality, we see it also in the New Testament. By Jesus' day, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. And before we throw them under the bus, they lost their way to be sure, but the whole Pharisee movement began because these These Jews had a deep passion to see God's people obey God. It was out of this desire for obedience and holiness, for nurturing a spiritual life. They were engaging in fasting twice a day. And it wasn't only the Pharisees. Uh, Remember the story, John the Baptist's disciples also fasted. The forerunner of Jesus, his disciples also fasted. It's them that came to Jesus and asked the question, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? It didn't make sense to them. Why aren't your disciples fasting? The Pharisees fast. 
We're fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? To which Jesus responds, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. According to that imagery, Jesus is the bridegroom. And while he is with them physically, it's a time for celebration and feasting. But he says, a time will come when I will be taken away and then they will fast. There's this assumption, even in Jesus' words, that there is an appropriateness to fasting and that his disciples will fast. In fact, we recognize that assumption in this passage we're exploring. Just as we saw in the two previous paragraphs, Jesus says, when you give, not if you give. Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray. Likewise here, he says, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast. Indeed, we continue to see the practice of fasting engaged in by the church in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, the church, we read the church was worshiping and fasting, and the Holy Spirit told them to set aside Barnabas and Paul for the the work that God had called them to. A little bit later, uh, Paul and Barnabas are, are praying and fasting, and they appoint elders and commit them to the Lord in their, in their ministry, in their mission work. So we continually see this practice, this paradigm, this pattern of fasting throughout the biblical story. Now, we may well have further questions, some of least I will address yet. But it is undeniable that there is this pattern of fasting throughout the biblical story. It runs through both testaments. We see it over and over and over again. So let's turn from the the pattern, the paradigm of fasting, to the second P, the, the particulars of fasting. What exactly is fasting? Typically, we think of fasting as going without food, not not eating. And that would be the most basic meaning of fasting. But there were different kinds of fasts, as I already... A a normal fast, biblically, was going without food and and only drinking water. There were partial fasts. We encounter this in the book of Daniel, where Daniel goes without choice meats or wine or anything good. One translation says, with nothing good. (laughs) Just simple food, no seasoning. Like, he ate some basic stuff, but he fasted from things that would be enjoyable to eat or drink. Then there's the absolute fast that we encounter in the story of Esther where you don't, don't eat or drink anything, not even water. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones contends that the concept of a fast can legitimately be applied to other things as well and points to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says that a couple can agree mutually to abstain from sexual intercourse for a season for the sake of praying, that that, that is a sexual fast, if you will. There, there are other things we can fast from, the social media fast, we've talked about that, or fasting from TV or fasting from coffee, giving up something, going without is intrinsic to the notion of fasting. But if, if that is all we think of when we think of fasting, we are missing something. Richard Foster writes this about fasting from the Scriptures. Throughout Scripture, fasting refers to abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. For spiritual purposes. That is a vital component of biblical fasting. See, we can fast from things for other reasons. We can fast from food for health reasons because we want to lose some weight 
We, we can fast for a variety of reasons. And some of those may have benefits. They might be good. But that's not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is going without food or going with whatever it is you are, are giving up, going without for spiritual purposes. Not merely going without. So let's turn now and think through and unpack what does it mean to go without for spiritual purposes. Thirdly, the purpose of fasting. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16, we read these words of Jesus. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Fasting is to be done for spiritual purposes. What Jesus here is describing, what Jesus here is condemning, is fasting that is for show. Fasting that is a performance that is done for self-promotion. Remember the word hypocrite originally came from the context of the theater. It referred to an actor, someone who was playing a part. Over time, the word hypocrite came to have a pejorative meaning of anyone who was pretending to be someone that they were not. Jesus has used that word throughout these last paragraphs, speaking of those who put on a front, if you will, go through the motions. They, they, they give, not out of compassion or out of obedience, but out of a desire to get attention. Those who pray, not to engage in intimate fellowship with the Father, but to get attention. And here again, he speaks of those who are hypocrites in their fasting. They're, I was going to say going through the motions. They're not just going, they're actually fasting, but they're not fasting for the right reasons. They're fasting wrongly. They're doing it to be a show. See, Jesus is not against fasting just as he was not against giving or praying. Of course not. He, he's against play acting. He's against pretending. Engaging in this spiritual practice for show, not for an actual spiritual reason. D.A. Carson writes, what began as a spiritual self-discipline was prostituted into an occasion for pompous self-righteousness. So we can see that the hypocrites were misusing fasting, that for them fasting was a means to get the applause of the crowds, to draw attention to themselves. And in so practicing it, they've completely perverted it. We can say also that the purpose of fasting, rightly practiced, is spiritual. But what exactly does that mean, actually? How, how does being hungry help us spiritually? How does going without food or without food and drink, how does that help us spiritually? What is the spiritual benefit of, of being hungry? The answer to that question is found in thinking deeply about our desires, about our cravings, about our appetites. Richard Foster writes these words, our human cravings and desires are like rivers that tend to overflow their banks. Fasting helps keep them in their proper channels. Let me read that again. Our human cravings and desires are like rivers that tend to overflow their banks. Fasting helps keep them in their proper channels. Foster is profoundly helpful at this point. 
our culture, our world, the world in which we live, our, our culture right now bombards us with a message that stands in stark contrast to what Foster is asserting and what the Bible tells us is true. Foster says that our cravings and desires tend to go wrong, to overflow their banks. Our, our culture tells us, rather, that we are to live in accordance with our desires, to follow our desires, to follow our appetites, to follow our craving, that we are to live in accordance with whatever we find within. In fact, our culture tells us if you want to find out who you are, look deeply inside, that's where you'll find your identity, and then just live that out. Look inside to discover who you are. Look inside to find your identity. Look inside to your desires, your cravings, your appetites, and then live that way. Because to do anything else, the world says, is to deny your true self. That is the message that we are bombarded with. That is all around us. But the message of the Scriptures, the message of Jesus, stands in starkest opposition to that. See, the Bible attributes to every human being, every man, woman, child, no matter your age, no matter anything, every single human being, the Bible gives incredible dignity. The Bible tells us that every human being is created by God for God, to, to, to experience fellowship with God. That, that was, we were made by Him and for Him, to know Him, to love Him, to live in relationship with Him. And the Bible tells us that we were created as His image bearers, that every one of us is to reflect what God is like in this, His world. There's incredible dignity that the Bible ascribes to every single human being. But the Bible also tells us that because of sin, we have been marred. Because of sin, we are broken. We have rebelled against God. We have sinned. But God has not abandoned us in that place. In His love for us, God launched a rescue mission. John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world, world translated there, it actually means humanity in opposition to God. God so loved the world when we were his enemies, when we were against him, when we were rebels, when we were utterly broken and sinful and wicked. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus, that God, the second person of the triune God, put on human flesh and came and lived among us. He came and lived a life of perfect obedience of full humanity, obeying the Father, living in intimacy with His Father. He lived the life that you and I were created to live, but the life that you and I failed to live. He lived it, and then He willingly, Jesus willingly, went to the cross for us. In our place, He bore the penalty that was mine, that was yours. He suffered and died in my place so that through faith in Him, what was broken might be healed that we might pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, that what was broken between us and our Creator might be healed. That is amazing good news. That is amazing good news. And, and the good news that, that is announced here by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is painting a picture of gospelized humanity, humanity brought into existence by the power of this good news of redemption in Christ. And so what we see here is that, that though we've been created with great dignity and value, 
Though that is true, we have been warped by sin, and when we encounter Christ and encounter the good news, we are brought back into fellowship. We are saved, we are redeemed, and now Christ is transforming us. He is reforming us. And so our desires, our appetites, our cravings that have been bent by sin, He is wanting to reshape them. He's wanting to restore them. And so we must not look to our desires. We must not look inside to find out what is true about who we are. We must not look inside to find out how we should live. We, no, we look to God. We look to God's Word. We say, God, who have you made me to be? Shape me. Move my appetites, desires. Keep them in the boundary that you've created them for them, in the riverbank. We need to be reformed. We need to be transformed. There are things in us that are out of whack. And so the call of Christ, the call to Christ is a call to deny self, actually. In Matthew 16, Jesus will say this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We will never discover who we are We will never find true joy, satisfaction, rest, peace. We will never find those things by looking inside, by following our desires, our cravings, our appetites, but only in submitting ourselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His Word and letting Him bring healing and letting Him bring correction where our desires, where our cravings, where our appetites have overflowed the boundaries. See, fasting is a spiritual discipline about self-denial. It is a means of grace. It is this means by which Jesus forms us, transforms us, and teaches us the right God-ordained boundaries for our desires. It is a means by which Jesus shapes us and forms us into men and women who reflect His likeness and who become truly human. I've said this before, but it's so important to grasp. We are never more human than when we are walking in obedience. Sin dehumanizes us. It, it, it makes us less than who God created us to be. Obedience isn't some oppressive thing. It is the path to true humanity, to being who we were created to be. And that takes self-discipline. It takes correcting of our desires that have been marred and bent And gone out of whack. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Fasting is a spiritual discipline by which Christ shapes us. It is a means of grace that teaches us to exercise self-control, self-discipline over our desires and appetites that have gone over the boundaries. Foster writes, you are to be the master of your stomach, not its slave. 
If you have ever engaged in fasting, particularly an extended fast, you'll find that after several days, the hunger pangs actually go away. And what you will begin to recognize is, is that you want to eat not because you're hungry, but because you have a deep desire for that food because there's joy in it, there's taste and delight. You'll recognize how many food ads are on TV. Right? God can use this discipline to help us recognize the, the power of our desires and to shape them and, and to create in us a deeper desire to lead us to that place where we would pray and say, Father, shape, put, plant within me a, a growing desire that I would desire you more than I want food right now. That I would hunger and thirst for you above all else. You will find yourself becoming more and more aware of the powerful desires within you. And you will be able to pray and commit those desires to Jesus and you can invite him to produce in you that deeper longing, that deeper desire for him. Fasting is a powerful means of grace by which we grow in self-discipline and self-control, and ultimately in deeper intimacy with Christ. That, that is the purpose of fasting, growing in, in an awareness of our true, deeper hunger for God, a hunger that will only be satisfied by Him. Fourth, the practice of fasting. So how are we to practice this? Well, Jesus has said, we've already looked at, not like the hypocrites. We're not to do this for reasons of self-promotion, for the applause of others, but let's read what Jesus says. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Perhaps you're wondering, what's this bit about oil on your head and washing your face? Those were simply normal aspects of grooming in the ancient world. And Jesus' point here is similar to what he said in last week's passage about praying in secret or in the giving passage about don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Jesus is saying that, that we do this before an audience of one. And, and so you put on your makeup, comb your hair, hairspray, whatever, put on your face, do all the things that you normally do so that you see, what was happening with these hypocrites is they, they, would, they would make sure that they looked like they were really miserable so that people would go, wow, they're really suffering out of their godliness. And Jesus says, don't do that. Doll yourself up. Do whatever you normally do. Look normal. Go about your normal life in a normal way so that you're not putting on any pretense for anyone else to go out. Look at them. Just you do this before the eyes of your Father who sees. And he says, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, the reward, I would contend, is not some future reward in heaven. The reward is that experience of deeper intimacy with God in the present as we engage in this spiritual practice, this means of grace. Each November, we at Sunrise have designated the month of November as a month for prayer and fasting, and we will do that again. And you don't have to wait till November, but I do that as an opportunity, an invitation for each of us to lean into this often neglected spiritual practice. That 
collectively as a church over the course of that month, every day, every meal, one of us would be fasting, that we would together fast for the month of November. And whether that's for you taking that first step to say, hey, I'm going to fast for a meal. And again, fasting for a meal is very different than just skipping lunch because I was too busy doing other things. Fasting is done for a spiritual purpose. And so whether it's taking that first step to say I'm going to fast for a meal or a day or maybe you'll fast for an extended period of time, I want to encourage you to think about what is Jesus calling you to. It's a hard thing to choose because you'll recognize certainly hunger, but you'll recognize that desire, that inner desire. But by this means of grace, we can grow in obedience. We can, we can invite Jesus to ensure that our desires are in the boundaries for which he's created them and that our deepest desire our desire for God is, is kindled and nurtured. The, the warning that stands at the beginning of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, is be careful. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Jesus is cutting deeply into our hearts and exposing to us our motivations. He is showing us that we can do righteousness in an unrighteous way, that we can do the right thing for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way. And see, Jesus doesn't want merely outward compliance. He wants to gospelize us right to the very core of who we are. And He wants our motives to be transformed so that our deepest desire, our deepest hunger is for God alone. He wants our hearts. And so I want to say to you this morning that as Jesus shares this word with us, as he opens our hearts to expose our motivations, perhaps you're sitting here and you recognize in you that your motivations are not all right, that they're bent, there's a bentness, there's an out-of-whackness there. And, and I want to say to you and to everyone here, remember how Jesus begins this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they come empty-handed. Those who come spiritually bankrupt. Those who come with nothing. For theirs, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the good news we thank you for your sanctifying work in us, Jesus. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, that you would transform us, that you would transform us at the very deepest part of who we are, in the depths of our hearts, in our motives. Lord, that we would, we would be transformed, that our greatest desire our desire that would so leave other desires in the dust, our greatest desire that would be nurtured and grown would be simply a desire for you, Father. So work in us to that end, we pray. Amen.